everybody, and welcome to Writing the Rapids, the show where normally I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show, but this is a bonus episode because I just wanted to talk about NaNoWriMo and NaNoGenmo, and if you don't know what those are, we'll get into that. I spoke to Douglas Lumen, who is a writer with poetry and prose published in magazines such as Salamander, Ocean State Review, Rain Taxi, and Prelude. He is production director of Container, art director at Stillhouse Press, head researcher at Applied Poetics, a book designer, and digital human. His book, The F-Text, is published through Inside the Castle. He is also an assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science at Allegheny College, and speaking with him was simply a delight. If you are new to this podcast, because of this conversation, I would encourage you to subscribe via whatever podcatcher you found this through, and if that has a rating function, please rate it highly. If you would like to support me and my endeavor to talk to people about writing, you can do it in myriad ways, such as signing up on patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe, throwing me some cash via paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe, or buying my book, It is called Tired, it is on Amazon, and if you DM me and ask me real nicely, I'll probably just give you a PDF of it. Which I guess doesn't help me financially, but it will make me feel good. So without further ado, let's get into my talk with Douglas. To start off, November is, among other things, National Novel Writing Month, which is attached to a nonprofit organization that... uh, encourages people to write a 50,000 word novel in the month of November, which novel and 50,000 words is sort of a dubious sort of thing anyway. Um, And it has since sort of been piggybacked, um, looks like since 2013, by uh, NanoGenmo, which is a novel generating month, uh, which sort of similar to the Castle Freak project for uh, longtime listeners of the show will know what that's all about. And uh, when I posed the question on Twitter, Douglas, you were the one who who introduced me to the NanoGenmo idea, um, mentioning, I think, that you had participated in both the standard NanoRimo and NanoGenmo. So what is your uh, sort of history with these two projects and um, I guess we'll go from there. Yeah, so I think uh, like a lot of folks, um, I, I had a history with doing NaNoWriMo as a kind of college level thing when I was in college and then I graduated and I was working. And of course, as as many of us who have had jobs and written on the side know, you kind of get away from one discipline or the other. And NaNoWriMo was a way to get social community and get back into the act of actually doing the work and so I did that for a couple of years uh, until I went eventually to graduate school um, to get my MFA at George Mason. And I, somewhere in the middle there, I, I'd come from tech. So my jobs had all largely been based in technology programming, all sorts of different technological interventions. And it just made sense to me to somehow start doing computational work, whatever that meant at the time. It, it meant actually doing constrained poetry, but using computational means to write the work, so to make decisions for me. 
And somewhere in there, I became familiar with NanoGenmo, the generation month aspect of this, uh, probably around 2014, 2015. Um, I participated, I think, in 2015, 2016. I did a half-hearted attempt in, in 2020, I think. Uh, and I'm sort of back on the train this year, hopefully. Uh, but of course, it's always a, a game of, gen of basically like prioritizing things and figuring out what, what you can or cannot do. Um, but I think that I, I've now kind of transitioned full-time because my, my work that I do is pretty much all computational. So I hang out with the NanoGenmo folks more than the NanoRimo folks, though I do teach at a college. And so you do get to see a lot of the folks who are in the English department, but which I'm in the computer science department. So I'm not necessarily over with the English folks, but a lot of students on campus do it. There's flyers for, for groups. And, and I see that same sort of social uh, social thing. And I think that happened with NanoGenmo for me. That was that was what was appealing. Um, I, I had the Enrico Fermi moment, if we remember the question about beings in the universe, the, the famous question of, well, if there are so many of them, where are they? The idea was, if, if there are other folks that do computational work, where are they? And I think Darius Kazimi, who is the person who tweeted this in 2013 as a kind of half joke, half not, mm. uh, that was a person who has generated essentially a community around this to make November in parallel with National Novel Writing Month, National Novel Generation Month, and made it, made it a thing. And I think that the community and seeing what people are doing and having a month when we all get together and we try various things, we do experiments and we're time limited is extremely important. Now, while the time limit often means that I myself, I'll just speak from personal experience, like you run out of time um, because you're racing against the clock. And usually it's one of those things where you think about it, think about it, think about it, propose something at the beginning of November, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to do it. And then you do it in the last week and a half. But some people are more organized than me. So... I think that that is a, another major aspect in which they're similar, but of course their methods are largely different. Though, again, I mean, there's really no comparison between them. I mean, you sort of do the one that you you feel like you have the tools to do or the interest or the aptitude, because the goal is, again, that arbitrary marker of 50K. Like, can you get to 50,000 words, which to generate it, you can do it once you have the program written much faster than writing it, of course, but mm -hmm. uh, there is of course that intellectual labor that is similar to actually penning out all 50,000 of the words uh, to actually making the code. So there, it's proportional time sync, um, but in a lot of ways it, it gives visibility to a lot of the folks that are out there doing this pretty much all the time, which there are several, and you mentioned uh, inside the castles, castle freak, which is another one of those those visibility points and then there, again there are people that do this all the time so it's it's a great way to join on a writing conversation and really start to draw out a lot of the ways in which method and approach and practice enter the the task of writing more than just you know sitting down and doing the words mm -hmm. and because twitter is the place that it is you know, the, the, when I first started getting into, uh, whatever semblance of a community you can call the people I follow on Twitter, um, I saw somebody tweet something about NaNoWriMo specifically that like, you know, forcing yourself to pump out words, um, 1600 words is not insignificant, um, to do every day, um, for, for many people, um, that forcing yourself to do that sort of makes it 
uh, um, kind of precludes it from being very good, you know. And even even NaNoWriMo itself is like this is a project about killing the editor in your head until such time as it is time to edit, you know. Um, and it seems like the sort of literary or pseudo literary, um, you know, academic or violently anti-academic um writing world kind of view writing the same way in that it's a sort of slow plotting process that happens when it happens um whereas the genre world that i was mostly interested in um like listening to the podcasts of and reading that type of stuff up until i started writing the stuff that i'm writing now is very much like um you know i spent six months world building and then I wrote a 150,000 word novel in two months, like, because I know what the story was. And there's a story from one of the podcasts I remember listening to. These people were at a writer's conference and a fantasy writer who pumps out a novel a year um, was talking to somebody who's doing literary stuff. And they're like, yeah, I've been working on this piece for like five years. And they're like, how do you spend five years writing a novel? So, you know, coming from one world to the other... Uh, for me is interesting because I very much like the, you know, I like the idea of writing every day. Um, and I think that part of that has to do with forcing yourself to do it when you don't really feel like doing it, that I guess, uh, some people feel very opposed to. Yeah. And I think that that's, uh, well, so I agree. I, I also like like the idea of feeling like I'm going to sit down and dedicate myself to a discipline and I'm going to do it every day and it's going to get me, you know, somehow I'm going to be able to keep this up. But yeah, I guess it's it's hard. It's extremely hard. And so to have dedicated time for it, or at least have dedicated time where you focus on it, even if it's one month out of a year, for some folks, I think that that's a, a good reigniter or a restarter to a, a process or a discipline that they want to work on. Um, I think for a lot of folks too, especially folks that do nano genmo, for example, it's a kind of break from their normal. A lot of people do it because they work in computer software or they work in some adjacent field. There are some people who are students that do it. There are some people who have never done computer code work before, very little. And so they don't necessarily have the same relationship. But in a lot of ways, it's a similar process to a lot of folks do a lot of other kinds of writing every day. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's always that dodge where you think like well you know if you're writing an email or you write a bunch of emails you can count that as writing because it's writing but it's just not the same i just never found it the same so i never was able to sort of use that as a way to make myself feel better about my inability to maintain a strict discipline outside of you know some single digit number of months uh that's less than five but greater than two <laughs> so it's it's just really hard uh and i think that this offers the ability for folks to just engage their skills in a different way that allows them to express something and especially in nanogenmo so there's people that do it they do these mini ones or they try to do one-liners so the things that are done in one line of code or they try to do mini nanogenmos where they come up with small projects that they want to do because it's a little bit easier to actually plan size when it comes to these things because the actual generation can be somewhat arbitrary mm -hmm. so you really to generate 50,000 words for a computational novelist is a much lower ask than it is for, in terms of just like being able to actually put words on in a file, mm -hmm. right? It's just, a, it's not labor wise. I think they're 
the, the beautiful part is they're roughly equivalent because they're similar intellectual labor. They're just different expressions uh, of largely different, again, different skills, but at the same time, you're still trying to figure out, does this text, do these pictures, do the relationships between all of the elements of the actual final form, whatever it is, a document or uh, a web page looking thing. I mean, how does it engage with media? How does it engage with subject matter? There's still a lot of similar humanities questions really, really tightly bound up in this. And especially when we think about, and you mentioned like Twitter is, is a sort of special place, but there's a lot of expression that happens on Twitter via things like bots, via mm -hmm. accounts that like horse eBooks is one that I, I am so sad every day that it's not doing something anymore. Mm. Um, these, these accounts where they're performative, but they're also sometimes automated. Uh, so you get a lot of, of questions about, about media context there too. So I think it's really something that at least NanoGenmo itself positions itself in that way as to introduce the conversation of do these media contexts mean anything? Because I think in some cases, there are certain writing processes out there that sort of ignore the fact that the internet ever existed. Hmm. And for some people, that's an enabling thing. But I think also we can't ignore that it's such a cultural texture that it just seems that the question that computational novel, well, one of the questions that computational writers are asking is what does it mean that technology is so clearly on display here? more so than something in like an Asimov novel or thinking about, um, well, the, the the worm movie, Dune is out now. So everybody's mm. thinking about those kinds of like questions about technology too. And the, seriously, in, in sci-fi, yes, those questions are, are central to the thinking about how the story progresses, but what about the actual conceptual mechanism? Uh, and it helps us to, I think, encounter things like artificial intelligence or machine learning in a meaningful way to say that these are still products of human endeavor and human effort that have significant aesthetic and cultural and industrial impacts that if you participate in something like this, I'm not gonna say you understand AI because there are so many applications in NanoGenmo that are not at all artificially intelligent. Um, I mean that in the literal ironic and joke sense of everything, <laughs> but there, it gives you this idea that cultural engagement with computation goes far beyond spreadsheets, goes far beyond search algorithms, and goes far beyond uh, just letting machines do what they do because there's clearly human intervention, right? There's clearly humans who are behind the code. There are clearly humans who are responsible for the outcomes. And I know, and I'm, I'm name checking Darius Kazimi, but folks like Darius Kazimi, Martin O'Leary, uh, Liza Daly, I'm just gonna try to populate this podcast with as many names as I possibly can. Good. Um, these people are all thinking about, thrice dotted, it's another, they're all thinking about this idea that if you do something with a computer, it has effects, it has consequences, whether those are positive or negative. And it just so happens that in a lot of cases, things were not thought out very well. And so the stories that we hear commonly about bots and automated narrative systems, uh, at least in the popular culture, are those things that arise to the level of being contemptible or being underplanned or having effects that are highly negative. So it, it makes a relationship, or at least draws a relationship between the creator and the created in a way that is different than the novelist to novel, which I think we see a clear pipeline there. Mm -hmm. You understand, even though we're not supposed to necessarily read the novelist into the novel, uh, I've, I come from a, a literary MFA, like you do, there's biography details there. There's, there's clearly markers of personality from work to work. Otherwise you don't really have a body of work, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, I think this also puts those questions into computational art in meaningful ways that help people approach 
both computational art, but also just computational cultural in general. Yeah. Um, I do find, I guess I hadn't really thought about Twitter bots, um, especially the more, you know, word focused ones in the same way that I think about like this person does not exist, you know, um, mm -hmm. for, for some reason I separate the, the visual ones from the textual ones. Um, but I mean, I made a Twitter bot you know, years ago that's still running today. And I think it hasn't repeated itself yet. Um, which, you know, was a fun process, but certainly wasn't the same thing as like making a neural network to write a, an actual narrative novel, you know? And um, I think maybe where, where you and I sort of are coming at the generated stuff differently is... I think about it more as not even more. I think about it almost exclusively as a like tool of understanding the form of writing and, you know, how you think about stories or structures or things like that just differently. Right. Cause, um, you think about lonely men club, you know, is, is a very much just, um, you know, a list of variables, got computed out a bunch of different ways and then Mike stacked them up in the ways that he wanted to. Um, and just the way that like, that is a story, uh, that, you know, I think would be very laborious to actually type out yourself, you know, that you would be tempted to switch it up at some point. Um, but he was able to do it in such a way that it worked that I, as the reader, didn't really skim, you know, like I read every page, I read every word I could see on every page, uh, the same way that I would any other book, um, that I don't, I don't know if I'm like on exactly kind of the same page as you when it comes to the sort of larger implications about AI and, and code and tech, um, but I, I definitely enjoy the parameterized um, way of working that so many creative coding people do tend to do, you know? Um, oh, yeah, that's a huge texture. So I think that there's um, C.A. Conrad, the poet, has a, and I think this is them, and if I'm getting this incorrect, hopefully someone will correct me in the comments, uh, the idea of the, the writing machine, this this idea that there are things that are non-technical that are also machine-like. And of course, this goes back to things like the Ulipo mm -hmm. uh, in the, the mid 20th century, still to today, where we're thinking about parameterizing writing. And I think that's a, definitely a texture uh, because when you go into doing this, if you truly surrender your part in the process in terms of my controlling central ego editor, in the same way you were talking about how you're supposed to reject the editor when it comes to, to NaNoWriMo, I mean, it's similar. You can have a great idea. And this when I fail at NanoGenmo, which is, you know, I can count so many failures. When you fail at NanoGenmo, it's largely because you have that, like, I'm going to do something editorial. I'm going to do something heavily concept-based. And you have to surrender to the variables. You have to surrender to the fact that this process is going to introduce something that you're not going to expect. And as someone who is 
central to the art or someone who is acting as as some kind of you're not really controlling but you certainly are someone who's coordinating a coordinating consciousness probably not not necessarily controlling but coordinating uh, as a coordinating consciousness you do have to ask those questions of form uh, and and sometimes you have to decide that you're just going to let it roll uh, but you do still have some level of do, if I code this correctly, and by correctly, I don't mean like technically correct, because that's definitely not a concern of mine. If you code this thing in a way that it will produce content that is in some way clearly objectionable. Uh, so it's like ethical system design, really, when you think about what you're making. And you may not know the outcome, but you're able to kind of predict that there could be some patterns that are are ethically dubious or worse. I think there's something to that as well in terms of just being able to to coordinate things that happen. But again, it's again trading constraint for constraint. I mean, you're you're really thinking about how am I going to build the boundaries of what this this thing can do, and how is it going to test those boundaries in interesting ways, and how is it going to react to those boundaries in ways that are not human, hmm. in the sense of I made that happen, but and I, I use the the AlphaGo. Uh, parallel here, the the chess engine, or not the chess engine, the Go engine that was a chess engine, but it's now a Go engine, mm -hmm. that what it does is it makes moves on the board that are, humans cannot understand. It has a grander strategy, or maybe it doesn't, but it makes moves that are not part of like the pattern. This is how you open the game. This is how you run the game. These are the patterns that you're supposed to follow, right? And so it's still playing the game. It's still within the boundaries of the board. It's still placing stones on in places that are legally placeable, but they're just not necessarily understandable. And that difference in me not being able to understand the output of what I see on the screen is a lot of times the joy. And that's where mm. I think uh, Mike's book, especially, right? There are moments where you're like, I will read the next page because A, it's quasi unpredictable, but B, also I'm interested to see how it tests the limits of the physical book itself. And so there's a lot of conversation when you actually do put these things into form, whether it's a book form, a PDF form, websites, um, web pages or, or even Twitter bots. A lot of NanoGenmo stuff eventually migrates its way to a Twitter bot. Mm. Um, Martin O'Leary's famous for this. He's got two or three that did that. There are, there are just interesting things that happen. And I think that that's where, that's a concern that I get to, and maybe I'm approaching, I approach NanoGenmo far too conceptually sometimes, I think. And I think about like, just like larger, like what am I actually doing in the moment? This code that I'm writing, like I had one last year, I always come up with a possible one and an impossible one. Mm. And like my impossible one is always the more interesting one, but it just, it's just not doable. Right. Uh, you're, you're thinking more about like, it's almost a conceptual work in itself. Just like the idea that it's proposed um, and that technology could do this or this interfaces with technology in some way. So I think that perhaps it's just a question, like it's not so much a difference of like, approach to it maybe it's just a question of like as an as artists you know what do i want to get out of it and what do you want to get out of it and i'm i'm just really really and maybe it's because what i do for a living you know i teach computer science so my idea is always kind of how does well a how does a rogue infiltrate computer science like me and how do you mm -hmm. like act within the, the boundaries of the discipline and still do creative computing but also what what does that what does it mean what does it mean that there's a humanist in computer science uh that is making humanities objects and so like i guess that's just a research interest that i i really double down on because i think it's significant as a, a kind of teaching tool not just for my students but just for folks who get interested in this as well hmm. so have you how has doing 
Nano Genmo influenced um, any conclusions of that that you've come to or, you know, shaped where you think the conclusions might be. In terms of, like, teaching? Uh, yeah, or just, you know, the the relationship of art and technology huh. in this way. Yeah, so we were talking about this a little bit before, uh, if I'm allowed to reference the mm -hmm. before talk of the recording. Um, we get, we're talking about this a little bit. I think what it really gets down to is the idea that we ask different questions. Like, what questions are we allowed to ask? You know, what, what are we allowed to do when we approach a computational object? And as far as computational novels go, I, I think the question to bracket off here is the question of good. Like, mm -hmm. is, is yeah. what, what is good? What is acceptable? What is appropriate in terms of an actual outcome? And I think we so often focus on technology being correct and right, right? Like you get on Spotify, you search for something, you want the searches to be relevant. You get on a search engine, you want the searches to be relevant. And we've seen how, at least in terms of search engines, um, and I think of um, Zafia Noble's algorithms of oppression when I'm thinking about this, in terms of search engines, we've often seen that they return results that are wholly inappropriate, that are are heavily influenced and biased. And, and while efforts are underway to improve that, at the same time, we're really kind of asking these questions about like what about correctness of technology and and in a lot of ways the conversations we have around these computational novels about form and the relationship of of person to product and the relationship of technology to product has to do more with like what there are still a lot of unsettled questions about form and there's still a lot of unsettled questions about what is the outcome of this whole process? Why do people do it? And I think that we're not really looking for a definitive answer because you can't answer the question of like, why do you novel? You know, why do you write something like that? I, I think that clearly human expression, right? Like there's there's that variable. There's the, the idea of pleasure. Like you can find distinct and, and supreme pleasure doing this. You can explore a lot about yourself. And it just so happens that the product is publishable. You know, so you, you go and do that. But I also wonder if, we're not actually in NanoGenmo in some limited way, actually testing the boundaries of what humanistic technology could start to look like. And we're starting to really understand these conversations. The NanoGenmo thing is just a way to research and it's, it's creative and it's creative computing. So there's no article, there's no publishable. I mean, yes, there are seminar papers and there are all sorts of, I mean, ELO, the electronic literature organization is a thing. There are other symposia at which creative computing folks talk, uh, many, many, many of them. So yes, there are shareable, tangible lessons that come out of this. And a lot of times they're less about fixed product than they are about what technology can do and what we can do as, as consumers, programmers, dreamers, uh, participants in a society that's more increasingly oriented around technological objects like what what we should expect of them that isn't necessarily in the category of of right wrong in terms of like the the binary there but more in the kind of moral squishiness of like what what are we willing to accept how should we interface with technology what kinds of products do we find value in um 
And it's just asking a lot of larger humanities questions, which again is why it really interests me. And the outcomes of those questions change from year to year. I mean, there's always, you know, so I think some things have gone more visual. And so we're understanding, you know, how do visual networks change the what we can generate and how, how good those actually are. So are we at the age where we will have the automated novelist or the automated graphic novelist? Uh, no, probably not. But I don't think that, that was ever the question. I think the the question was more, you know, what what does it what does it mean to do this? What does it mean to express yourself via technology? What does it mean to take ownership of that expression, rather than live with inside of sort of prescribed systems? And we we've talked about Twitter, but all social media, uh, even though it's an expression format, is a highly prescribed, highly circumscribed conversation in which you're participating in like a a received kind of genre. Um, what what can we do within that, without that, around that? What do we demand of those things? What kinds of expression are possible? What kinds of futures can we dream? And I, I think that there are some that do or do not engage in this, right? Like uh, the, one of the famous one is Hugo VK's 50,000 meows, where there's 50,000 instances of the word meow. Um, that is way more technically complex and deep than than you might think just by my very, very cursory description of it. But there can can we delight in these things right are we allowed to simply look at the product of a machine and say this is absolutely wonderful wondrous marvelous and delightful right like have we had those questions is that okay and i think for a lot of people there's still this weird uncanny valley that goes beyond self-recognition that goes into well this was written by a machine i think particularly of the dartmouth poetics competition in which the the job of the participants in this competition is to fool the judges in a Turing test to mm. say, is, is this human, basically, do they judge this to be human writable or human readable rather? Um, did humans write this? And I don't know if even that's the right question. I think that there's, there's something about just the texture that we have yet to understand. And clearly in the, in the ways that we as a society don't necessarily understand proactive technology legislation, although we're beginning to, I'd say we're, we have more of a handle of that now but there will be technology in the future that's going to test our ability to predict what it's going to do. I think by doing, and this is like a very lofty kind of thing that I'm putting on a basically folks who just write 50,000 word AI generated novels. Like it's a huge lofty thing I put on it, but I watch this and participate this in this with the idea that this is a kind of education. This is a kind of research or exploration that will have tangible outcomes at some point once more people start doing it because we're not at critical mass yet. I, th I don't even know how many people actually do NaNoWriMo. It's probably in the hundreds of thousands. Maybe. It's quite a lot. They, they raise millions of dollars, you know, every year. Right. Um, and it's a pretty, it's an accepted thing. Like people understand what that is, right? Right. They understand what people are doing and they understand when people engage in the act of writing what they're doing. And I think that there's still, now granted NanoGenmo is only, you know, less than a decade old at this point, even though people have been doing computer written poetry since the 50s, 60s. So it's not a new thing, but I think in terms of being an organized, publicly available, publicly viewable and consumable thing, it's still very, very young. And so there's a huge opportunity here to use this as a kind of way to say, we're exploring outcomes. We're exploring expressions. We're exploring limits. And in some cases, and this is another one. So for the gearhead folks out there that are interested in very, very specific technology, OpenAI is a company that has this model called GPT-3, which is extremely shockingly um, readable. I don't know if I would call it accurate because I don't know what that means, but it's readable. And 
there were folks that were writing novels using some proto version of that, or were using previous versions of the company's framework just to test and see what it could do, right? Because I don't know that they necessarily have humanists on staff that are, are hanging out and saying, you know, how can people use this in a creative way? It's a, it's a way that you can test technology and you can road test what's possible. And so in a way, a lot of these, they're doing public scholarship, they're doing public research, whether they're not that that's their goal uh, by having a fixed product output. And now people are starting to write about it more. There are more blogs every year that cover it in less of a way than people did from 2013 to about 2016, where it was all about fascination. It's less about rote fascination now, and it's more about what are the best objects out of this and what can they say? Or what are my favorite objects and why? Or there's a more sophisticated conversation that's happening now. So I think we're seeing it evolve. It's not necessarily mainstream, but I think we're seeing it evolve. And that excites me because that means that more people are going to see it, more people are going to do it, and more people are going to start this process of doing the work to engage with technology in a way that possibly transforms them. So I don't see it as fundamentally different than the, the hope of every writing teacher out there that you put someone through a process, they discover something metacritical about themselves or they discover something about themselves in the process of doing it. Whether or not that product is publishable, is that a question? I mean, for some people, yes. Um, for example, I'm someone who is a professor in academia, so I need to do a certain quanta of publishable things, right? So I have that on my shoulders, but I'm not, I, I think there are professors who do it, but there are also plenty of people who aren't. And, and so there's a lot of, I'm just doing this thing, I'm putting it out there, I'm making a work, and they're exploring something about their, their own relationship to technology, or they're exploring something about what they could produce and what that, not even if it has value, just like what does it at all mean that I've done this for myself? And that creates a more sophisticated consumer, it creates a more sophisticated technology person so hopefully we see some outcome of this, I hope in you know, 20, 30 years into policy, into thinking about building technology, and you see more people engaging in these kinds of conversations, uh, even if it's not necessarily you know, front page news. I, I don't expect this to ever really be of that level. I mean, it's not gonna be an entire issue of Publishers Weekly, but it certainly is starting to spawn publishers inside the castles. One, there are others who are doing computational works, um, Dead Alive was one that was doing some computational publishing. They published Nick Montfort's latest Golem. There are other computational works that are making their way out there in fixed form. Counterpath Press did an entire series called Using Electricity, which was computationally based poetics, or at least machine-based poetics. I can't speak for every single title, but I think they were all computationally rooted in some way. But you're starting to see publishers put work out there too. And the more you see it, Again, the more you have to, to think about this as a, a texture or a subject matter. So I think just literally the doing it is the goal, right? Mm -hmm. The doing is the goal. And whether or not it's publishable, well, everybody releases their novels at the end. Mm -hmm. It's not like someone is holding close their particular product. And if they are, then they're probably not participating in, in NanoGenmo. Um, although the beautiful thing is if you were to download the code yourself, you could modify it and run it and get a different outcome or even just run it and get the different outcome from the same code. So there's something there about indeterminacy, which I also think is interesting, but I don't know that that's part of the, the question that you were asking. But I think as a teaching tool, right, if I'm being being the, the person that I am on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, I am, I'm thinking about the ways in which this process does that thing where students engage with the, the doing of it, the making of it, and whether it's an amazing success for a catastrophic failure, 
like either teaches you something about yourself, about the work, about what you created, and possibly you can take that and do something with it or not. I mean, it's up to you at the end of the day, right? So it's no different than any other kind of expression activity that folks engage in. So I just think it's meaningful in a lot of different ways to expose folks to textures that may otherwise be somewhat scary, I think, because I think there's a lot out there that is unknowable, unknown, and and if you don't grapple with it, you don't really see where the state of it is. And I, I'll, I'll bracket off my editorial about artificially intelligent things not really being that intelligent. <laughs> right. Um, okay, I want to uh, do a thing that, that we don't normally do here, but I think to end, if you... If I could put you on the spot and just have you list off, I don't know, places to start for people who are who are not into this sort of thing. You know, I I know a little bit of HTML, <laughs> um, and and you know I'm aware of Castle Freak. Beyond that, generative writing is, you know, uh, it's as much of a something i'm aware of as like sculpture right so if somebody wanted to start not necessarily to do it themselves um although not necessarily not that where where would one start getting used to this whole idea yeah yeah so i think you're thinking about just in general code stuff like if you just want to get and start doing code stuff even stuff starting somewhere like code.org even though a lot of stuff is generated or, or made for younger audiences i still think there's a lot i think um Dave Milan, who teaches at Harvard, has a thing called CS50 that is a super popular course, but there's an online version of it called CS50X that uh, folks can can get into that teaches you a lot about programming. Uh, I think that Microsoft has got some good, some good tutorials out there. I think there's a lot of content online that you can just get into doing the programming and the computational stuff yourself. I'd say if you're interested in this particular subgenre of writing, though, uh, you're really looking at things like, um, well, it depends on what your purchase is on it. If you just want to read some works, uh, NanoGenmo is on GitHub, which is github.com, which is a software repository. It is the world's largest uh, source of well, source of source code, I guess. I was going to not repeat myself, but I did, uh, where we share everything. So there are organizations every year from 2013 on where people file these issues that are intent to participate, and then they post their products at the end. So those are kind of ways to get into the technical side. I think if you're looking for an interesting set of books here that are para-academic, uh, Charles Hartman's Virtual Muse is a very, very good one to think about in terms of just this idea of texture. Um, I think, what's another one I can think of? Uh, Noah Wardrop-Fruin's Expressive Processing is is another very, very good book. Um, another one that's in the, the genre of software studies or thinking about the ways in which creative expression through computers has, has changed our lives or is nostalgic in a way is Nick Montfort's 10 print, uh, which thinks about uh, my first language, which was GW basic way, way a long time ago. That's like a very, very, very old language. Uh, but there's, it's a very interesting book from MIT press. Um, I think castle freak, of course, if you want to see what people are doing uh, inside the castle, John Treffery's castle freak, I probably mispronounced his name because I've never heard him pronounce it. Um, that's a, a good place to go to, to see what's up there. I mean, Twitter, honestly, Twitter is a place where these people hang out. Um, and you're thinking about names of people like uh, Kate Compton, Zach Whalen, Liza Daly, Darius Kazemi, Martin O'Leary, 
uh, if you just search these people, they are Twitter folk. Um, I don't know if Darius is still on, on Twitter, but uh, a lot of these names are there and they're posting about this stuff. They're sharing this stuff. They're doing it on a more than just November by November basis, which I think is is a, a big thing. Like I want to move this away from being just an event and being more of a regular thing, but I am grateful for the event. Um, uh, Lillian Bertram is, a, is another uh, person who's been doing a lot of work in, in computational poetics specifically, uh, whose book Travesty Generator is is a, a good exploration of like the texture of this. Without like getting into coding, you can kind of appreciate what it does. Um, I mean, I could just like alphabet soup names all day. Uh, but I think getting involved in just seeing what these people are doing, uh, if you want to learn a language that does visual things too, processing is a good place to start. It's a language that is very specific toward generative art. Uh, there's also in January coming up, I think, I don't know if they're going to do it again this year, but people started doing something called January, which mm. is just generative graphics. Uh, so it's also that uh, because in NanoGenmo, there's two rules. There's, well, an, an or rule in there, which is 50,000 words or because one word, one picture is worth a thousand words, 50 pictures will do. Mm. Uh, there's that sort of like joke there. Uh, folks do that. Um, but there are some like really, really important ones that I think about. Zach Whalen's This Comic Does Not Exist, um, Greg Bornstein's Generated Detective, Liza Daly's Seraphs. Um, there are a number of other works that if you explore the NanoGenmo history, you'll see uh, that. You don't need to know the you don't need to know code to understand because they have the output there. And if you want to appreciate the texture, sometimes you see conversation around it too. So I mean, there's a lot of different ways to get into this. Um, whether or not you want to actually build one, or you want to just uh, consume them. And I think Darius Kazimi, there's an article online you can search it. It the title is, uh, gosh, even a beginner can write a novel generator. <laughs> where it's very encouraging in a way where like you can do something with very, very little text and, and very, very little code knowledge. And actually some of the best works that have come out of NanoGenmo have been by beginners who have done something very simple, but they did it very well with variation repetition and really, 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 really basic code strategies. They've made some amazing things. So I, I hope that that was a, a list that at least gave you some, some resources. Um, there's tons and tons more. Uh, but I would keep an eye on on Press's Dead Alive, Inside the Castle. Um, Cream City, the review, used to have a thing called IO. I don't know, know if they do it anymore off the top of my head. Um, Cream City review. Um, there are others out there that I'm missing. Oh, the Electronic Literature Organization, ELO, is somewhere that you want to also pay attention to because they have a whole host of publications that talk about stuff like this. Um, New River is a, a fairly well-known older one. And there are uh, Taper or a bad quarto, um, they exist. So my, my my own answer to my question of where is everybody, well, there is there there. And they existed long before I entered the conversation, but I'm grateful that they were there. One big shout out to the work that got me involved in this really was BP Nichols' first screening, which if you haven't seen it, it's on YouTube, you can watch it. Uh, it was written in the 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s. And it's a wonderful masterwork of <laughs> very old computer technology but very interesting use of it and it's bp nickel um yeah that's the work that really got me into it so uh, i sort of spun down the rabbit hole by finding other people who wrote about this and then just sort of developed my work from there
Oh, 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 oh,